News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of things have changed during this pandemic, but there is something that hasn't, and that is people's attitudes towards wealth inequality. It remains at the top of the list for Canadians as a concern that needs to be dealt with. That's one of the findings of a new survey by the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation. That's a consulting group, and it's headed up by former New Brunswick Premier Brian Gallant, who joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Tell me about some of the work that you do, because it's such an intriguing name for an organization, the Center for the Purpose of the Corporation. (laughs) Well, the purpose of the corporation is a bit of a term that embodies a discussion with regards to what is the role of business in society, what is the role of other types of organizations as well, what type of purpose should they be following, what impact should they be looking to have on society, on their stakeholders, and just more generally uh, on some of the challenges we face. So we are very excited to do what we can to try to advance awareness on this topic and also, of course, provide some insights and help some businesses and organizations that uh, are trying to implement these concepts and principles uh, in in order to have the most positive impact possible uh, on their stakeholders, on society and, and the challenges facing this generation. So you did this survey and you asked people and clearly wealth inequality is on the minds of Canadians. It, it's really remarkable. Um, when you look at the findings, in the midst of a global pandemic uh, and with much uncertainty facing the world economy, Canadians are largely focused and concerned about inequality, inequity, and the environment slash climate change. Rather than being concerned or having the top of mind concern be something like healthcare or even the economy. So really it demonstrates that inequalities, discrimination, the uh, fight against climate change are things that are not only top of mind, but they concern uh, Canadians immensely. And also they want all institutions, including businesses, to step up and do more to address these challenges, which is a bit what the centre will try to do uh, when it comes to businesses that want to uh, enact and implement things that will help address these uh, issues. Right. I found some of the results of the survey really interesting, such as 84% of the respondents said they prefer what's called the stakeholder model, where businesses take into account the interests of all stakeholders. Now, is that something they feel is not happening right now? Well, correct. It's really interesting. I mean, some will say it's a bit of a motherhood apple pie statement, as they often sort of use the the term, but there's no question. The vast majority of Canadians want to see businesses focus on all stakeholders, not just on shareholders, owners, or investors. They want businesses to focus on societal issues, not just on creating profits. Um, So so what's really interesting as well, uh, as you alluded to, Simi, is that businesses are not perceived to be doing this. They're not perceived to be uh, really following uh, the the uh, expectations of Canadians. Uh, and really, I think it's, it's um, very striking in, in the finding that when asked how our economic system is doing for, for Canadians, they had some pretty, uh, pretty evident sentiments uh, that I think businesses should take note of. Uh, 55% of Canadians want to see capitalism reformed to be more inclusive, to be fairer and more sustainable. 
Essentially, they want to see the economic system reformed to address the three top-of-mind challenges that they listed off. Uh, so I think that Canadians should heed this, uh, this call, really take this seriously, and try to address the expectations of Canadians. And what do Canadians believe b- businesses are concerned with? What are they prioritizing? There's no question that Canadians have the impression, uh, whether it's factual or not, uh, is debatable, I suppose, but they have the impression that Canadian businesses and businesses in general are focused on profits, focused on shareholders, focused on the owners and investors. Uh, There's also an appetite, uh, which I think is important, uh, for, for businesses to step up, but also for governments to force them to step up. Uh, and, and again, I think it's really something that, that's important for businesses to take note. Um, Canadians recognize that businesses in our country help create jobs and they help uh, ensure a stronger economy and they, they provide goods and services that are important and they foster innovation. And that comes across in this, uh, in this survey and research. Uh, but at the same time, that's not enough anymore. And, uh, and if they don't heed the call, I think that we're going to see uh, increased pressure on governments to step up and actually force businesses to not just think of profits, not just think of shareholders, but to think of all stakeholders, to think of other uh, important societal questions such as inequality, climate change, and, in- and inequities. Do you think businesses are hearing that, though? I mean, given everything that's happened in the last six months, they must realize how important, say, customers are and employees are along with shareholders. I do think they are. And, and one thing I, I try to always say whenever I talk about these issues is any business leader listening to this is not going to be surprised by this research. I mean, they may be surprised by the exact numbers, but they're, they, they're feeling it. They're feeling the pressure. They're feeling the expectations increasing on them. And, and again, I, I have to point out that Canadians still expect businesses to help on the job front, to help create economic activity, to foster innovation, and of of course, to provide goods and services in a competitive fashion. So the the expectations uh, are are just increasing. They're not necessarily changing, right? They're just more things that Canadians want to see businesses do. So for business leaders, it's hard. I mean, they still have the sort of uh, obligation to hit their financial targets, to try to out uh, outperform their quarterly targets. And, and on top of that, Canadians want to see them address some of the societal challenges of our day. So it, it's not easy. And again, hopefully the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation will be able to help businesses figure all of this out. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that today. My pleasure, Simi. That is Brian Gallant, former Premier of New Brunswick and the CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation. Really interesting survey that they did. Wealth inequality and inequitable treatment or discrimination was first and third in terms of which issues Canadians most often choose as the most significant challenge facing the world. 65% of Canadians said they believe that Canadian businesses and corporations prioritize profits for their shareholders over the well-being of their stakeholders, which would be employees, the communities in which they operate, uh, you know, the clients, uh, you name it, essentially. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com. I think a lot of people would agree with those findings, right? The question is, will anything change as a result of what has gone on over the last six months? Time now for us to have a little chat with Nikki Reitmeyer. We are going to be talking about crossing over to the North Shore Do we need another way to do that? I think most people would probably argue yes, particularly if that's part of your daily commute. Nikki Reitmeyer with us. Good morning, Nikki. 
Good morning, Simi. I'm just taking a look right now at the traffic volume levels coming over the Lionsgate Bridge, and no big surprise, it doesn't look too bad right now. And yeah, okay, the traffic on Highway 1 down Taylor Way over the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, it's also moving really well. But we know that this isn't the normal. I mean, normally we see really heavy volume on those routes, especially on weekends. We see really heavy volume heading up towards Lionsgate Bridge, people coming back from Whistler, uh, you know, Highway 1 all the way through to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. So as you said, you know, is it time for some other type of crossing to get across the North Shore? I think a lot of people would say, yeah, it is time. There's so many interesting things to talk about with this. Like, for one, I just got an email from Rick who wants to point out that, listen, if they want to do this, if they want to spend billions on infrastructure, he says, forget a third crossing. Instead, expand Highway 1, at least four lanes in both directions, all the way out to Hope, he said. People are leaving Vancouver in droves and they're heading out to the valley. And we both know, because we just took that a couple of times, that somehow terrible traffic can be once the uh, Highway 1 narrows, you know? Yeah, to his point, I don't think it's a bad idea. I know this is a whole other animal itself. But But he's saying if you're going to spend the money, he's saying spend it out there, don't spend it on a third crossing. Well, I'm sure he's saying that probably because he probably lives out that way too. True. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there is, there's definitely, you know, logic to improving a lot of different areas around Metro Vancouver. And yeah, I mean, you and I recently drove that route in from Hope on Highway 1 and you always, you know, get stuck in that traffic coming through Chilliwack, coming through Abbotsford. And you look at that grassy median right there thinking, you know, they could do something with this. They could put some kind of a transit system right down the center of this, some kind of, you know, LRT here, or maybe they expand the highway with more lanes. I think that most people look around their own communities and see areas where there could be improvement projects. And hopefully some of those issues are addressed in TransLink's 2050 transportation plan, where like your emailer said, they are going to be spending billions of dollars on hopefully improving transportation systems around Metro Vancouver. But, you know, whether it's improving those conditions out towards Hope or whether it's adding another crossing for the North Shore to downtown Vancouver or to Burnaby. This is the TransLink 2050 plan. So we could be dead before we actually yeah. see any of no this kidding. stuff happen. Well, Most me before you, that's for sure. I'm way older than you. So that's yeah, definitely I live the a faster case. life, though, Simi. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, so there's they came up with four choices, right, in this feasibility study? Yeah, they came four up with four or five. They've got five choices. So the update on this for people who've heard a similar sounding story before is that they knocked off one of the choices. So one of the options was Burnaby to Lonsdale Lonsdale via the second Narrows Bridge, but using the existing bridge crossing that's there. And they said, okay, scrap that option. The new feasibility study shows that, you know, that's not such a great idea. So the options that are remaining are one option from Burnaby to Lonsdale via the second Narrows, but that means that they would build a new bridge crossing, probably parallel to the second Narrows bridge for a transit line. Then the other options all go out of downtown Vancouver or come back to downtown Vancouver. So you have uh, downtown Vancouver to Lonsdale via the first Narrows or the Lionsgate bridge, and that would be a tunnel crossing. Then you have downtown to Vancouver via Lonsdale or to Lonsdale via Brockton Point, which again would be a tunnel crossing downtown Vancouver to West Vancouver via Lonsdale. That's a tunnel crossing. And then this one is actually a bridge crossing option. It's downtown Vancouver to Lonsdale via the second Narrows Bridge. So basically, you're either going around up near the Lionsgate Bridge, you're going around up over by the second Narrows Bridge. They're talking about either building tunnels or they're talking about maybe adding new bridges. All I know is all of that sounds very expensive, especially the tunnels. 
Yeah. Uh, yes, I think so. They are apparently already doing a little bit of digging in that area related to other projects. So apparently they have some kind of general idea as to what it could cost. But mm -hmm. we know that, you know, North Shore mayors, they really want to see this happen for people in their districts. And I thought actually that the District of North Vancouver Mayor Mike Little explained it in a very interesting way. About 8% of the population of the Lower Mainland is on the North Shore. When you look at the amount of spending that's planned between here and 2050 for TransLink, if we were to get 8% of that, we'd be able to fund this no problem. Interesting point. Okay, so what's the next step? Well, the next step is, I guess, we talk about this until we're blue in the face on the radio, and then maybe or maybe it doesn't happen. I don't know. We'll see where it goes from here. But they've narrowed it down to these five options, so it'll be interesting to see moving forward how quickly they actually right. move on this, although the timeline is not expected to be anytime soon. Okay. Well, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. I would be curious to hear from people about whether or not you think we do need that third crossing. Should it be a tunnel? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Okay, I'll admit it. It does sound like something from a Hollywood movie like Armageddon or Deep Impact. Personally, I was more of a Deep Impact fan myself. But a system to deflect asteroids that seem to be on their way to Earth is actually on track to launch in 2024. Let's find out more about this. Joining us is Mubdi Rahman, a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Mubdi, thanks for being back with us. Thank you so much for having me. Is this for real? It, it is. I mean, it's not. One of the things I should warn is that this is not going to inherently save us from asteroids, but it's trying to see whether or not it's possible to do it. So that we don't have to land a crew of people, including Bruce Willis, on an asteroid to blow it up. I mean, yes, we want to save Bruce Willis. That is super important <laughs> to the people of Earth. How does this work then? What, what are we trying to do? Okay, so the cool thing is it's actually a pair of missions. So there's one that's coming from NASA called DART, and that is going to be launching in the next year or two um, and will be heading to a pair of asteroids called the Dimorphos System. And it's a, an asteroid that is one of the ones that... Um, you know, in an unlikely possibility, could be the kind of asteroid that could impact Earth. It's, you know, the, it's a pair of asteroids. The smaller one is about 100 meters in size, so about the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And the larger one is much larger, like almost a kilometer in size. And they're sort of orbiting one another. And the DART mission is going to actually just try to blast into the smaller of the asteroids, that you know, pyramid-sized one. So what ESA has signed up for now is to send a second satellite out there to actually see how well the DART did at moving um, that smaller asteroid. So I guess Hollywood doesn't really do us any favors with this either, do they, Mubdi? Because I think for people, yeah. they think, well, it's so easy. Just blast something into space and hit the asteroid. <laughs> well, I mean, these things are big. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is that unlike, you know, unlike on Earth, where we can just, you know, push off the ground in space, you've got to basically do all the pushing yourself. So you need to bring up enough fuel there to actually provide it with enough momentum to actually, you know, push it off. It's basically like playing pool, but in three dimensions at some level. And you've got to do it at a very large distance because the further you are, the better and more likely you are to be able to deflect something. Right. You don't want it to get too close when you don't have to use as much fuel because then something could go wrong. Yeah. I mean, if you could see it from, if we can see it with our own eyes from here on earth, it's probably too late. Right. How long has this been worked on? 
so, uh, I mean, people have been talking about this actually uh, largely since the Armageddon and the Deep Impact movies. There you um, go. This asteroid was actually a part of a discovery that was made back in 1996 where we've been actively looking for near-Earth asteroids. They're actually really hard to find uh, because they're so small, right? We're, only, we're talking about hundreds of meters. And just to give you a sense, the size of the Earth is 6,000 kilometers. So this is a small speck in comparison to Earth, um, but could do deadly damage um, if it actually did impact Earth. But the concept of actually moving it, people have talked about it for centuries, but this is the first time we're ever trying to actually see whether or not that's feasible. Okay, so we're launching this, what, in 2024? That's correct. So the first one, DART, is going to be launched uh, in 2021, I believe. And then this is going to be launched in 2024 to follow up. It's funny because it seems like, once again, we have this, like, Hollywood dreams it up first, and then science seems to follow because you wonder, <laughs> geez, I wonder if we could actually do that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's, some, uh, there's actually some importance to that, right? You need to have, uh, you know, a concept of the idea and, like, the, uh, you know, the larger specifications in mind before, you know, actually following up and making yeah. sure the engineering can work and yeah, exactly. getting people on board. So uh, Hollywood <laughs> actually kind of helps in this respect. I think it really does. Yeah, Mubdi, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That is Mubdi Raman, a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto, talking about this project, a planetary defense mission that is actually signed on with a prime contractor now to launch in 2024. And yes, it's a system where they're hoping to be able to figure out some way to deflect asteroids that are potentially on their way to Earth. One of many examples of Hollywood going first and then science coming after that. Hey, do you wear a homemade mask? I think so many of us do. Just about every face mask I have is a homemade one. Several of them made by CKNW listeners. So thank you very much for those. But you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I think people were just kind of winging it when it came to making masks and using material that they thought, you know, would work out okay. But now a team of UBC researchers has actually made a list of the best and most effective materials to use when making masks at home. So let's let's find out about this list. Joining us is Stephen Rogak, a UBC mechanical engineering professor. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, tell me about the process that you guys went through to figure this out. Uh, well, what we're doing is taking the uh, patches of, of cloth or patches cut out of um, commercial masks to test against those. And we uh, basically flow air through this mask material and the air contains um, a sample aerosol um, simulating what, the, what you'd have carrying the COVID, but obviously not with the COVID virus. And we measure the concentration before and after the swatch and determine what the mask has removed. Okay. And what did you find? Like, are all masks in some way beneficial? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, certainly uh, for the size range of interest, which is probably above one micron in size, um, those would be the particles most likely, to, and, and maybe even above 10 microns, those would likely contain the COVID particles. Um, any kind of cloth material is, is better than nothing. Uh, but none of them approach the level of filtration of an N95 mask that we've heard so much about. Right, that's the problem that we've heard so much, but not everybody has one of those. Uh, but what materials yeah. worked best? Um, well, again, uh, not everybody needs an N95 mask, and, and probably to a large extent that's overkill. So the, um, we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, and, and that any mask is really a lot better than nothing. Um, but, the, but of those homemade materials, uh, some are definitely better. 
and uh, materials like um, a loose um, knit cotton works pretty well because um, it's quite breathable and the individual fibers tend to fray a little bit and you, you have on a microscopic level uh, essentially tiny hairs which are better at catching particles than than big bundles of um, tightly woven fibers. So the, the cotton works quite well and some of the synthetics work uh, quite poorly in terms of being uh, not very breathable and not capturing that many particles. Interesting. So that's the common materials. Yeah. So yeah, the common ones. What are some of the ones, that, was there anything that surprised you when you did this? Um, well, I guess, I guess, uh, just how poorly some of the synthetics do, um, some early on in the pandemic, we, we heard, and we were a little skeptical of some of the advice that you want the, the tightest weave that you can get, you know, like a, a silk or polyester that looks like it's gotten, lets no air through. It also lets no, uh, lets no light through. It also lets no air through. And, and in some cases, those materials would, uh, allow, uh, say 95% of the particles of size interest to actually penetrate, whereas uh, cotton would be doing, um, a single layer of cotton might be doing uh, many, many times better. So that was surprising. There are some materials to stay away from. Um, and then uh, it turns out that dried baby wipes um, do quite well as a filter material if you're making a multi-layer mask in which you can put a filter layer, and right. many people are building those. The dried baby wipes um, are cleanable. You can wash them and they don't degrade, uh, so they're reusable. And they have a better uh, trade-off between breathability and filtration uh, than almost any of the um, conventional cloths you might make uh, clothing out of. That is so fascinating because the filter is such an important part of this when people make it. But you're saying you don't need anything fancy for this. Just go to the drugstore. Well, I, again, none of these none of these are going to do as well as um, as uh, N95 masks or commercial masks. But um, nice thing about these homemade masks is you can make them fit properly for your face, and they're reusable, so we don't end up with a, a mountain of um, used masks all over the landfills and the sidewalks. Okay, so then, Stephen, if someone were to build a mask, they wanted to make a homemade mask, how would you recommend that they put this together? I would recommend against the skin. You probably want something that's uh, comfortable and soft. So there the the cotton material is good. It wicks moisture away. And uh, something that's comfortable is probably more important even than the filtration quality because, uh, again, any mask is better than nothing. And if you have something you're willing to wear that's... um, that's really important. And then the next layer out would be the filter layer, which um, could be the dried baby wipes. It could also be um, uh, from the drugstore non-medical masks. If you, um, Those materials right. are actually not bad, um, but often those masks themselves don't fit very well. And uh, then on the outer side, um, you can use something, almost anything, as long as it's breathable, uh, you know, to protect the, the whole mask, uh, keep dirt away from things, uh, something that you can clean. And there, there, a smooth material might be fine, although you have to make sure it's breathable. Okay, so this sounds like what a lot of people have kind of learned through trial and error already, doesn't it? you kind of confirming yeah, and, that. Yeah, and, and it's consistent with uh, the WHO guidelines, um, although they've, uh, they, they specifically recommend a very smooth outer layer, which is waterproof. Probably not that important for most people to have a waterproof outer layer. 
But is but they do recommend an inner wicking layer against the skin, and, and we believe that is very important, um, especially when the weather is still a little warmer and, and uh, these masks can be kind of hot. So. so then, Stephen, on a final note here, once again, what are the materials that people should stay away from when it comes to making face masks? Uh, really tightly woven flat weaves could be a problem. And, and because it's the issue of breathability or lack thereof, um, those are things that you could probably test yourself in the sense that um, if you have difficulty uh, inhaling through that material, uh, that would probably be a poor choice for an outer layer. All right, we'll keep all that in mind. Thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. Appreciate your time. That's Stephen Rogak, UBC mechanical engineering professor. Uh, he was part of a team of researchers that took a look at what, what are the best materials essentially to use for a face mask. And they found that, first of all, any kind of face mask is better than nothing. Uh, and they said, really, use cotton. Cotton is the way to do this. And for a filter, I thought this was fascinating, uh, you can use a dried baby wipe. That actually works as an excellent filter material. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Oh, what a great song for a Wednesday morning, right? Okay, let's talk about two local BC boys who have had their dream come true. It's all because astrophysicist and science celebrity Neil deGrasse Tyson agreed to be a guest on their podcast, if you can believe it. So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with 13-year-old Max Mondaine and 14-year-old Zach Kobus. How did you guys first get into podcasting? It was mostly something that came from COVID. I guess we were just looking for something to do just to spend the time. And I think we both listened to podcasts quite a bit. It just seemed like a fun idea to do at the beginning. And obviously there was something about science that you love that made you want to do a science-based podcast. Just if I could take this one, Zach. We were both pretty uh, strong science fans. we listen to a lot of, I, I mean, personally, I listen to a lot of science podcasts, read a lot of science books. I'm extremely uh, interested uh, interested in the scientific field. And I think it was always something that has interested me. So, you know, doing a podcast on it was really cool. And just, uh, I like podcasts and science and it just kind of seemed to make sense once we got into it. Zach, what about you? What makes you excited about science? Well, I find when you started the podcast, I just like to just sit down and talk about some of the stuff that I just found interesting. And then we just found all these new topics that we are just learned about by ourselves. And then we looked into them a bit deeper and then we just talked about them. And I found that really enjoyable. I just wanted to continue doing that because it was really fun, really. Just breaking down interesting science, I guess. Yeah. That's really the cool thing about science, isn't it? That you can start knowing this much about a topic and as you dig deeper, you learn so much more and it, your knowledge just seems to keep expanding and expanding and expanding like the universe. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome to use it on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys decided to reach out to the Neil deGrasse Tyson. As Wayne Gretzky says, I guess you miss 100% of the shots you never take. So you decide to reach out to Neil deGrasse Tyson why? Why did you decide that he was the guy you wanted to email? Well, so both me and Max have been, well, and when we were both younger, we watched his show Cosmos. That I think for both of us, that was the first initial step into like our interest into science, and we very much enjoyed that. And then later in our life, as we got older, we started like reading more of his books, and then we started listening to his podcast, and then we kind of just said, why not? It'd be really cool if he did, but I mean, both of us didn't really expect much to come from it, and then yeah, I kind of 
pretty lucky, I'd say. What was your reaction when you got an email back from him? Yeah, so we sent the email just after one of our recording sessions, didn't really think much of it. And then the next day in the morning, I checked the email just to see, and then there was a response. And before I even opened it, I kind of started celebrating because, first off, they just got back to us. I didn't even expect it to be a yes. I expected it to be, sorry, he's busy. Uh, thanks for your claim, but uh, he's a bit busy. Can't seem to do it. But then I actually opened it, and it was a yes, and then I had to call Max and tell him the good news. Oh, yeah. That morning, he, he pinged me so many times, like maybe 30 or 40 times. <laughs> you had a lot of notifications that day. <laughs> That is so exciting. So why did he say in that email that he wanted to be a part of your podcast? He never explicitly said in the email, which was like really interesting for us. So we were just talking to through his executive producer. And until the actual Zoom call, we had no idea if it like I was worried. One of my things was, you know, this is just the bot or something. This, Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, OK, we went through his website. So this has got to be legit. But I had that thing in the back of my mind that, you know, this could not. This could be something like... Yeah, maybe it wasn't actually him, but, and we just got fooled. But we we never actually got to find out why until we actually got to talk to him. And what did yeah. he say? What he really related it back to was he got to meet Carl Sagan uh, when he was younger. Neil realized that, you know, he gave... Carl gave his time to talk to Neil, and if he said if he ever got even as close to being as famous as Carl was, that he would have to pay it back. And, I mean, I think that's what he's been doing, and he's done it in a lot of ways, and I think just coming on our podcast was another way that he's done that. You knew that you were going to have him on the podcast or maybe someone posing as Neil deGrasse Tyson, (laughs) some sort of catfish on your podcast. What questions did you want to ask him? What did you talk to him about? Well, the second we got the email, then me me and Max came together, and then we just had a big list because we – definitely had a lot to ask. I mean, asking your personal science hero, you probably, there's a lot to say really. But when she told us, or his executive producer told us that we had an hour with him, we tried to narrow it down to the ones that we really thought were going to be the ones that we really wanted to ask. And so Max, I think Max had a black hole question. He was really keen on asking. I had a dark energy, dark matter question I was keen on asking. And then kind of had a little discussion on Mars, which I thought was really cool because it wasn't actually one of the ones that we were keen on. It was just an organic conversation that came up while we were talking, which I I love that. And, you know, coming into it a little bit nervous, just, but at at the end, it started feeling really cool. Like it was natural at the end. Yeah. Which is really nice. Felt like you guys could maybe co-host a podcast with him in the future on a regular basis. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how has this inspired you? Where do you see your careers going from here? Well, okay. So I think the first thing is just, you know, I think I realized that, hey, just take those chances at the beginning. And, you know, sure, it's probably not going to always turn out as good as it did with for us. For us. But, you know, even like the next time if we tried for someone else, it might not turn out the same way. But I think we got to take, like, I think I've learned to take those chances. And I think... I think we want to keep on getting more interesting people in their own areas in science and stuff. Just probably the, not as high up as Neil deGrasse Tyson. Probably not as high up, but I think, I think just giving, just talking to anyone in their field would still be interesting. And I think it's just been a great first step to talk to Neil. I mean, I mean, it's a pretty high bar. I mean, <laughs> there's no. I think we have a, a good confidence after talking to him. Yeah. And uh, I think it was a really fantastic experience. That's awesome. Shoe for the stars, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Hey guys, I know that you probably already have thousands and thousands of clicks on this episode of the podcast after having such a big guest on it, but I hope that we can get you even more clicks. So could you so tell me <laughs> the name of the podcast and where we can find it so we can listen as well? Okay, so the podcast is To The Max Podcast, and uh, you'll be able to find it hopefully everywhere where you get podcasts. I mean, there's probably some really spotty uh, source, but I mean, most of the major places, definitely you can find it. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, so probably everywhere. I think that's my thing. To The Max yeah. Podcast. Yes. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was really lovely chatting with you and best wishes. Yeah, thanks. No problem. So there are some rules in my family when it comes to kind of my sleep schedule that if they want to ask me for something, if they need something from me, the best time to ask is the earlier part of the day. Once we get into like late afternoons, evenings, my temper just isn't the same as it is earlier in the day. And that's because I'm tired and I'm thinking about going to sleep. Well, it turns out that's very common. Everybody gets a little bit cranky when they're tired and we don't react well to challenging situations. There's some new research that's been done on this. And joining us now is Nancy Sin, an assistant professor of psychology at UBC. Nancy, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks. Uh, This is really great. Well, it's great to talk about this because I feel so much better knowing that I'm not the only one who does this. Oh, yeah. This is very common. Okay. So what, what happens to our bodies? What happens to us when we're tired? Yeah, so we know from personal experience that when we don't get enough sleep, we're more cranky and we tend to be bothered by irritating situations that normally wouldn't faze us. Um, And a lot of this work has been done in the laboratory. So, you know, like depriving people of sleep and then looking at how they perform on different tasks. Um, But we don't really know how this works in the real world. Um, And so what we did in this study was we uh, had telephone interviews with nearly 2,000 adults for, um, for a week, every day for a week. And we asked them about how much t- sleep they got that, the night before and whether any stressful experiences had happened or, and whether any positive experiences had happened that day. Uh, and we found that when people slept less than their usual amount, so for example, if someone slept five hours when they normally would sleep seven hours, uh-huh. uh, then the next day they showed less emotional benefit from positive events. You know, so if something good happens, you don't get that the same boost in your positive emotions. Uh, and also we found that people showed a greater loss of positive emotions when something stressful happened. Uh, and that's actually pretty troubling because we have some other research that I've done in the past showing that when you, when you don't maintain positive emotions in the face of stress, that is actually going going to put you at risk for greater inflammation and other health problems. That's so interesting because we we know the negative parts, right? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised to find out that it also impacts happy things as well. Uh, Yes, Uh, and I I think this is so fascinating. There's been a a number of research studies coming out in the past few years showing that our positive emotional system tends to be more linked to sleep uh, and that uh, when we don't get enough sleep, we have um, sort of our our reward system, you know, how much reward you get from experiences and um, how much you want to seek out rewarding experiences that tends to be disrupted. So how do we, can we make up for sleep? Do you know what I mean? Like if we do have one night Uh where we get a couple of hours that we we miss a couple of hours, can we just make up Uh for that? 
Uh, well, yes, but uh, you should do it slowly. So, so really the goal is to build in habits where you don't have those large disruptions. Uh, and so what people, a lot of people tend to do is they don't get enough sleep during the week. And then on the weekend, they kind of sleep too much or, or to make up for that. And that social jet lag, so, which is what we call that gap between, um, you know, how much sleep you get on the weekends versus weekdays, um, that's actually bad for you as well. Um, you know, so having too much of that inconsistency is related to poor health. So so really the advice is to try to build in those habits where you're sleeping consistently. But that's so interesting. It also explains a lot why we have this impression that we just, we enjoy ourselves so much more on the weekends, right? But it's also because we're sleeping more and better. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. So where do we go from here with this research? What does this tell us that we just need to be better with our sleep habits? Uh, Well, yeah, that's part of it. Um, So a lot of people don't get enough sleep. So right now they're, recommendation tends to be at least seven hours for most healthy people. And really one in three adults are not getting that recommended amount. Uh, and it's troubling because the the trends over time is that, you know, compared to the 1940s, we are sleeping an hour less now than people used to. Uh, so, and, and especially now with more electronic devices and people being, you know, spending time on their screens, uh, just even over the past 20 years, people aren't sleeping enough. So I think that um, there has to be not just individual kinds of habits that need to change, but also on a societal level, we have to think about different ways that we can adapt in society to, to really promote sleep. All right, Nancy, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's good stuff. Nancy Sin, Assistant Professor of Psychology at UBC, talking about sleep research that we would all be less cranky. We would even be happier in the happy moments if we all managed our sleep better. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. I always thought we were supposed to get like seven to eight hours. Now they say six to seven is optimal. I probably get about seven hours a night. But you tell me what you get and how you function.